All right, well, so good to be uh, back in 1 Corinthians again. Man, it's been ages. So 1 Corinthians, go ahead and take your Bibles if you haven't already and make your way there. Um, if, if you remember what chapter we're in, anybody? Six. Yes, chapter 6. Yeah, we finished chapter 5 a long time ago. Last year. Thank you, Kevin. <laughs> a whole year ago. No, I think it must have been it must have been before devoted or something. It feels like. <laughs> but uh yeah, glad to be able to tell you to turn back to First Corinthians chapter six. We're just gonna really introduce this next section for um which is the first eleven verses. So first Corinthians six, one through eleven uh, originally well, the beginning of last week, my goal was to do all of them, and I think we're only going to get through like two verses this evening. So, 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 11 is a, is a, is a passage where Paul's going to, to address another manifestation of worldliness in the church at Corinth. Um, specifically, I will say this, uh, without giving too much away, how they handle conflict in the body of Christ. And so this is going to be relevant for us, I think, more relevant than I think you'll, you'll, you'll think it is when you first hear me read this passage. So let's read it together. Let's, let's go ahead and read the first 11 verses, okay? 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 11. Does any one of you, when he has a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels how much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life... Do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren, but brother goes to law with brother, and that before unbelievers? Actually, then, it is already a defeat for you that you have lawsuits with one another. Why not rather be wrong? Why not rather be defrauded? On the contrary, you yourselves wrong and defraud. You do this even to your brethren. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do you not be deceived? Neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, but you were sanctified, but you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of our God. Now, I was joking with Ben and Hayden earlier about we're, we're, we're going to be learning about lawsuits tonight. And in some ways, that's true. 
Um, but in other ways, I hope to see, I hope that you'll see after uh, we study it a little bit closer, it, it's much more than that. And it's far more practical than that. Because, you know, maybe some of you will never find yourself in the position of being sued by another Christian. <laughs> Hopefully not, right? But just by way of introduction, you know, we live, we live in a culture not unlike that of ancient Corinth. I think when, when I say lawsuits, we probably are very familiar with that kind of thing, even in the culture especially that we live in. Much like today, back then it was, it was typical of society for people to just take each other to court over anything and everything, to sue one another in order to get what they thought that they deserved in life and some on top of that, right? In fact, in many ways, it was very much like our culture in the, in the world's eyes, and maybe you've experienced this or seen this, or at least in the movies, or threats, right? <laughs> in the world's eyes, lawsuits were considered acceptable opportunities for gouging people or getting back at someone for what was perceived to be personal offense. And, and, and much like today, Taking someone to court over apparent damages or personal injury was perfectly, a perfectly acceptable means of disguising greed in the name of justice. Have you seen that can happen in our society? You know, it was so much, a, it, I would just say, it's, it's so much a part of our American culture of personal rights and reparations that I would argue we need this passage as much as they did back then. Um, especially when you think of the first response today in our culture, in our context even, of a litigation-happy society um, when anything remotely unfair or uncomfortable is done to us or happens to us is the, is, is the sentiment of, uh, well, you should sue them for all they're worth, right? I mean, that's just what people do. That's what the world thinks. Um, you know, we, we, uh, we experienced this as a family actually recently. Not that, no, we weren't sued for all we're worth, thankfully. But um, just this idea uh, when we told people recently about how Amos broke his arm. You guys, did you guys hear about that? Well, we were, we were at Haynes Park. Um, and he, and, and it was the city's fault, you know, for not, uh, properly, I guess, fencing off a part of the playground that wasn't, probably wasn't supposed to be what it was supposed to be. And he fell anyway, broke his arm. You guys know the story, I think. And, um, and, and, you know, uh, not within the church, I would say not within the church, but certain people out there that would see his cast and that would hear our story, particularly unbelievers, and even some of, you know, uh, our family members that don't quite know the Lord, that we don't think, you know, their first response is, man, you should just, you should, you should sue. Uh, you should be able to get a lot of money. And... Well, the reality was you can't do that to the city. Um, I found that out. Um, but thankfully, insurance, the city insurance is covering all the medical costs, which is all we wanted because they were crazy. 
But it's interesting. It's that mindset, right? It's that mindset of, man, it's so ingrained in our society. That is okay. That's an okay way to get a lot of money. In fact, I don't know if you've been guilty. I have at times as, as well been guilty of thinking of, of those kinds of incidents as uh, even hitting the lottery. Some people think of it that way. I mean, that's why fraud, insurance fraud, is such a massive issue. It's such a part of our society that it's, it's almost like, like it's a legitimate way filing a lawsuit is, is, is a legitimate way of getting rich quickly. And it doesn't just mean covering the costs of what was damaged. It, it almost always is more than that. It's why you have categories of legal compensation for things like loss of time, <laughs> frustration. I, I looked this up, com- discomfort and stress, all of which fall under the category of damages for inconvenience suffered. And I also just did a quick search on Google for some examples, and they're not hard to find. Just type in most ridiculous lawsuits. (laughs) Let me just read some of these. These are so interesting and ridiculous. A Michigan woman was late on her payments for a 2008 Pontiac G6 she had previously leased. The company repossessed her car, taking the gas in the gas tank with them. And Victoria Jean decided to sue for $5 million over the remaining gas left in the vehicle, claiming it was her personal property. $5 million. Another one, a man once found a seven-inch serrated plastic knife baked into his Subway sandwich and decided to sue the company for damages. He filed a $1 million lawsuit after claiming that the sandwich also gave him food poisoning. Apparently, it didn't bother him enough to not eat it, I guess. He just pulled the, pulled the knife out. <laughs> uh, in another article titled The Most Ridiculous Lawsuits of 2022, I came across one of a woman suing Kraft Heinz because she says Velveeta's microwavable mac and cheese cups are not ready in three and a half minutes. In the lawsuit, the woman claims the time on the front of the package does not include other time-consuming steps, such as tearing off the lid. How, how dare they? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> this last one's funny, though. In that same article, I found this one amusing because we live in Winston-Salem. Here, A man is suing Texas Pete because their hot sauce is made in North Carolina, not Texas. You know, it's made here, right? The lawsuit alleges that the product label is misleading because it features a stereotypical white Texas Lone Star reminiscent of the Texas flag and the word Texas. Again, the audacity. I mean, just, just think about that. I mean, we find that funny in some ways and ridiculous, but those seem like so silly to us. But yet in our passage to, tonight, we, I, I want you to note another kind of lawsuit that we should be just as appalled and surprised by. Because Paul is just as, if not more, exercised and dumbfounded and astonished at the situation going on in the Corinthian church. 
He's saying, what you guys are doing, the lawsuits that are being filed, should be in this article. It's ridiculous. It shouldn't happen. As unbelievable and as unreasonable as some of these cases may seem to us, I want you to notice what Paul's response is to Christians suing fellow Christians in the public court system. Notice verse 1 introduces us to this scenario. Uh, the, The next manifestation, you could say, of worldliness in the Corinthian church that Paul seeks to address here is this. Does does any one of you, when he's a case against his neighbor, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Just to set the context a bit and help you make sense of why Paul is now all of a sudden talking about lawsuits. Um, I mean, you remember coming off chapter 5, uh, which is all about church discipline and dealing with a sitting brother. Remember, Paul is concerned about holiness in the church. In other words, Paul wants God's people to be set apart from the world and to act very differently than those out there. That's the connection in one sense. His burden for the Corinthians is that God's people look and act radically different than the world, which is why immorality and sexual sin must be taken seriously and purged for the Christian community. In fact, he'll return to that same issue in this very chapter, in the second half of this chapter. So the question is then, hey, well, why all of a sudden this switch to talk about conflict, resolution, lawsuits, legal cases in the body of Christ between members? Why sandwich a discussion about suing one another in court between passages about sexual sin. Here's why. Because if you understand what Paul's concern is, at the heart of this failure, listen, to handle conflict in the church, guys, is the same problem behind the failure to discipline sexual sin. He's the same selfishness and worldliness that is behind the sin of suing one another for all someone's worth is the same selfishness and worldliness and greed behind the sin of sexual immorality. Both problems in Corinth are the fruit of carnality. But not only, look back, look back at chapter 5, like the last two verses. Look at 5. 12 and 13. Here's the flow of thought, right? For what have I to do with judging outsiders, Paul says? Do you not judge those who are within the church, but those who are outside God judges? You remove the wicked man from among yourselves. You see, just as Paul called the church in chapter 5 as a whole to deal with sin, the sin of sexual immorality in their midst, Here, Paul's also laying part of the blame on the church as a whole for not not just not dealing with the sinning, sexual, uh, immoral person, but also not dealing with this. Something Something as little as a dispute between a brother and a brother. 
Paul's point throughout this section is that, look, church, you are, you are responsible to deal with issues within the body of Christ. To ensure that the church looks different than the world. And he frames this in the language of judging or ruling those within. And the Christians, the, the Corinthians not only neglected to do this with the sinning immoral man, but here in our passage now we find out they apparently also failed to do so on a much smaller scale. The same shock and the, the shame and the shock of this situation, notice, is felt in Paul's words right out of the gate here, just to set the stage for you. The verb here in verse 1 has the force of, of, of how dare you, is the language. How dare you? And it's placed right up front in the original text for emphasis, which clues us into how outraged and appalled Paul was really at the situation. This was ridiculous indeed, these cases. What was the situation exactly? Well, the Christians, notice, were taking their fellow Christians to court over insignificant earthly matters to be judged and decided by those who didn't even know Christ. That was the issue. And as we um, just continue to set the stage here in verse 1, um, this is just introducing the situation that Paul's going to speak to. There are, uh, there are three problems with this situation that I want to show you up front first. Notice first the nature of the conflict. The circumstance is this. Look at verse 1. When he or anyone in the church has a case against his neighbor, or better, against another. And the word here translated case is, is literally an issue or thing or matter. If any one of you has in the church a, an issue, a matter against another. In other words, we aren't necessarily talking, Paul isn't necessarily talking about a sin here. It's just that it's the word pragma. That's, it's, it's, a, it's an issue. Um, He's not necessarily talking about sin as he was in chapter 5, just, just a disagreement over some earthly thing. In fact, notice how he goes on to describe this case in verse 2 with the term smallest. Do you notice there? The, he calls it the smallest of law courts or smallest decision or judgment. Um, that word smallest literally means most insignificant, the lowest, the least, the most trivial and unimportant kinds of cases. That's what we're talking about. That's what was going on in Corinth. That's what they were taking one another to court for. And look ahead to verses 3 and 4. Paul further identifies these cases and issues as concerning matters of this life. You see that twice, once in verse 3 and once in verse 4. Matters of this life, which is just one word that refers to that which pertains to daily life and everyday living. In other words, these are not significant, groundbreaking, philosophical, legal issues. 
The term is used one other place outside of this passage in Luke 21, verse 34, where Jesus is warning his disciples not to let their hearts be weighed down with the worries and cares of life. That's the same word. In other words, it's those those little things. It speaks of ordinary, insignificant matters that belong only to the sphere, listen, of our temporal, earthly existence. These are normal, mundane, everyday affairs. That was the nature of their disagreement. That's what the Corinthians were fighting and squabbling about and dragging each other to court for. So so to be clear, Paul's not referring to major legal proceedings over lofty principles, nor is he referring to criminal cases here that may actually require the use of government to punish evil and reward good, right? He talks about that in Romans 13. In other words, I I don't believe Paul then is demeaning every use or every case of secular law courts and authorities who've clearly been appointed by God. He'll say that in Romans 13. Rather, here he is shocked and disturbed because of what they were, at least for one, because of what they were fighting about as believers. Nothing significant. Just matters pertaining to this temporal existence that is here today, gone tomorrow. Paul is floored at the fact that the Corinthians are unable to handle such small disputes among themselves over civil issues. And so one, one writer says this, in, in Roman Corinth, such cases involve matters like legal possession, breach of contract damages, fraud, or in, injury. And uh, another writer goes on to say, the, the aim then of the ancient lawsuit was to prevail over another, and that usually involved an assault on the opponent's character. So think, think of this, here's, here's what you, you need to think of when you think of these particular uh, cases in 1 Corinthians 6. Think of the silly, petty courtroom drama of Judge Judy and Jerry Springer, okay? That's what we're talking about. Not matters of the Supreme Court regarding gender and abortion. Those, that's different. So the Corinthians were going to court over things that had no eternal significance at all. That was the first problem, okay? That was the first problem, the nature of the conflict. But notice the second problem, the parties involved. We know that Paul is referring to Christians suing other Christians. Now, that may not be clear necessarily in verse 1, because depending on your translation, uh, mine is the New American Standard. It translates it as um, your neighbor, which is uh, just an interpretation. It's actually the word for another, which implies that this is another brother. Because if you look ahead, what makes it clear is verses 5 and 6. Just look ahead at 5 and 6. He restates and clarifies there with more specificity that the problem is, I say this to your shame, is it so that there is not among you one wise man who will be able to decide between, here it is, 
his brethren. But brother goes to law with brother. That's Christian against Christian, and that before unbelievers. So to be clear, this is the second problem. It isn't just the issue that they were fighting about. It was the people involved. Fellow Christians, family members in the body of Christ who are supposed to be loving one another and forgiving one another and seeking at all, in all cases to be at peace with one another. So, again, just to clarify here as we continue setting the stage, to be clear, Paul is not commenting here on, about Christians going to court against non-Christians, Okay? But the fact that they would do this to one another, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, who they were supposed to um, serve and love and forgive, made it even more sh- unbelievable and shameful to Paul. At the end of verse 8 says it all. You do this even to your brethren. That's what makes it one degree more heinous. So Paul is beside himself that the family would dare to sue family. You know, it is, uh, you know, this is a principle in one sense that I try to teach my kids. You know, oftentimes when they're fighting over an issue, right, or they're fighting over a toy, I always find myself saying, asking them this question, is this more important than your brother or sister? And the answer, of course, is no. Sometimes they want to say yes, and I'll, and I'll call them on that bluff, but... It's the same idea here. Paul is shocked that they would do this at the expense of those whom they're in union with in the body of Christ. So that's the second problem. So not just the nature of the conflict, but also the, um, the, the parties involved. But lastly, and, and maybe, the most extre- maybe the most important here in this context Notice the last, the third problem, the place of judgment that they were turning to. You see, to add insult to injury on top of these disputes being over trivial and earthly matters and against fellow believers in the body, maybe worst of all, these cases we learn here are being taken before the unrighteous. Look at the end of verse 1. And it's repeated again at the end of verse 6, just a little bit of different language. Before unbelievers, that was an issue. You see, part of Paul's, a big part, if not the biggest part of Paul's dismay here is, is, was not simply that they were, there were disagreements among brethren. In fact, that probably is assumed, right? Sinners will be sinners. In fact, Chapter 5 proves that even when there's sin in the body of Christ, that there is a way to deal with it, and Paul's not surprised by that. So just the fact that disagreements and disputes happen in and among the body of Christ isn't even the greatest issue, but rather that these Christians were turning, the, turning to the world for solutions. They were going to secular people and authorities to help them settle what they could not settle amongst themselves. Twice it's mentioned here, 
that the decision or judgment is being given to those, taken to those outside of the Christian community who don't know Christ and, listen, don't have God's wisdom. How backwards things have become. Uh, One commentator says this then for Paul, the idea that God's people would look outside the covenant community for judgment on conflicts arising within the community defies logic. He goes on to say, it seems he cannot believe that those whom he congratulates for not lacking in any grace gift, particularly that of knowledge, are so ready to turn to others outside the community when it comes to matters of law or to grievances and arguments between believers. By the way, it's interesting. Did you notice here what Paul calls them, those outside the Christian community? He describes them first in verse 1 here uh, as the unrighteous. Literally, the unjust, because it was very much understood and accepted how corrupt the Roman small claims courts truly were. In other words, not unlike today in some ways, at least in certain countries and uh, even in ours at times, it was typically assumed that those with the most money and social status would, would likely win the case. Much like today, perhaps it was simply, it's just harder for those of lesser means and rank and representation to prevail in a lawsuit. Uh, That's also true today, isn't it? Regardless of the evidence. So at at the very least, then, what is Paul saying? Paul is pointing out the irony here. Listen, that the Corinthians were supposedly seeking justice from those who were characteristically unjust. How absurd. How ridiculous. They were turning to the world of unbelievers, those who were devoid of the Spirit and without the wisdom of God's Word or the mind of Christ. Chapter 2. They were turning to those people, the natural men, for judgments, decisions, rulings, and wisdom on such trivial matters that they were squabbling over. Do you see now why this was a problem? Why Paul would write and start off in verse 1, How dare you? This is what floored the Apostle Paul. And before we go any further, this is a really long introduction, isn't it? (laughs) There is an implication here, I think, for us to think about, about the, to the, for the sufficiency of Scripture and the usefulness of spiritual wisdom for settling disputes even over earthly matters. Let me make it really practical for you. Have you ever turned to unbelieving friends at work or at school for advice about relationship drama in the church? Have you ever done that? You know, something happens in our group here and you go off to school, you go off to work and you, you're venting to your friends at school and work about it and they don't know Christ. And they're giving you advice and you're turning to them for judgment. 
Listen, I think Paul would be just as exercised about that. It's the same thing in principle. I'll give you another example, maybe another way in which this is indicting to us as the church. This is also, listen, why I think it. it's tragic when churches fail to give counsel to their members who are having relational difficulties and instead direct them to secular psychologists for help. Listen, I believe Paul would respond the same way to that situation as well. He would say to them, what are, what are you doing? Is, do, you, do you not have sufficient wisdom here in the Word of God, with the Spirit of God, amongst the people of God to settle those issues? Why do you need to go out there for that? What a terrible testimony. So in summary, if, if, I, if I could paraphrase what Paul is saying here, as we finish setting the stage, he's saying here in verse 1, look, when you have a trivial earthly dispute with another brother in Christ, this is why it's, this is about conflict resolution, right? How dare you drag him to court before the world and not settle it among the saints? That's, that's what Paul is saying here. Listen, guys, if you get into it with somebody in the body of Christ, you should exhaust all your means here to to resolve that because the Spirit of God is sufficient and the Word of God is sufficient. So with that stage set about the situation, I think we're, we're in better shape to understand, I think, and apply this passage in the right ways. Um, I think you'll find, like I said even earlier, that as we walk through it then, the next, it'll have to be a couple weeks at least, um, that it's, it, this is far more applicable than, than you imagine it to be, like even if you never find yourself in a lawsuit with another brother in Christ. In fact, hopefully you'll never actually face that situation because Paul's point here is these kinds of conflicts in the body of Christ should never get that far. In other words, this passage you'll find is far more, is about far more than Christian legal procedure and jurisdiction or, or, or how to settle lawsuits over earthly issues between believers. It is about that, but much more as well. What Paul offers as a rebuke to the Corinthians reaches beyond this world and this life. His solution is more profound than it is pragmatic. And so here's your outline for the next week or two. In 1 Corinthians 6, 1 through 11, Paul's going to give us two reasons why Christians can and should settle earthly disagreements among themselves. I'll say that again. Paul's going to give us two reasons why Christians can slash should settle earthly disagreements among themselves. And I'll even give them to you up front. Number one, we're going to see in verses 2 through 6, because in Christ, these are are long, I'm sorry. Because in Christ, we should be able to discern earthly matters easier than spiritual matters. 
because in Christ we should be able to discern earthly matters easier than spiritual matters. That's verses 2 through 6. And second, because in Christ we should value eternal rewards over temporary gains. That's verses 7 through 11. Because in Christ we should value eternal rewards over temporary gains. So two reasons why Christians can and should settle earthly disagreements among themselves. In other words, you could just summarize these two in one sense by saying, look, you have what you need in Christ to deal with those conflicts. And, but then secondly, you shouldn't, you shouldn't be after such earthly things. Um, so let's just start the first one. I know we have like maybe nine minutes left here, but we'll just cover verse two. So part of this first one, okay? First Christians, first reason why Christians can and should settle earthly disagreements among themselves. Okay, don't look elsewhere. Just, just you have what you need in the body of Christ, the word of God and the word of Christ and the spirit of Christ, Okay. Listen to how Paul makes this argument. Because earthly matters are easier to discern than spiritual matters. Listen again to verses 2 through 6. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world, the cosmos, is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? How much more matters of this life? So if you have law courts dealing with matters of this life, do you appoint them as judges who are of no account in the church? I say this to your shame. Is it so that there's not one among you, one wise man who will be able to decide between his brethren, but rather goes to law with brother and that before unbelievers? What is Paul's overall point in this first section? Simply put, Listen, if Christians are competent to judge spiritually significant matters like the world (laughs) and the angels, they should be competent to judge earthly trivial matters. It makes sense, right? It's a classic argument from greater to lesser. Look, if you know how to do that, and you're capable of doing that with the Spirit of God and with the Word of God, then how is it that you can't do this? Consider the logic shown in verse 2. Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Now, Paul has already used this phrase, do you not know, uh, twice, once in chapter 3, verse 16, and once in chapter 5, verse 6, and he'll use it again a host of other times in this letter. But it is a bit of a sarcastic shot at the Corinthians who boasted much about their gifts of knowledge, and yet their lives didn't actually match what they said they understood or knew. And that happens throughout this letter, and this is just one other instance of that. In other words, for Paul... Knowing, listen guys, knowing theological facts is not the real measure of real knowledge. We need to hear that in a church that's taught really well, right? 
Rather, for Paul, real knowledge is only real if it impacts the way that you live the Christian life. The same is true today. It's like the quote I shared with you you in the group message a while back by Richard Caldwell. I I dug it up again, and he said this, well-taught will mean nothing but loss if it isn't matched with well-applied. There's often a sad disconnect in the lives of people very well taught between what they've heard and how they continue to see and live life. And that was true of the Corinthians. And Paul has to say to them, do you not know? You boast in your knowledge and yet the way you're living your life, taking brother to to court is betraying the fact that you don't really know. That that theological, theoretical knowledge that you have, they probably did know the theology that Paul is teaching here. That the saints will judge the world. He probably taught them that in the year or two that he was there with them. And yet their lives didn't, didn't show that they actually believed it. Didn't show that they really knew it. Here, the truth that they should have known, that should have impacted their actions is interestingly, do you notice, the future reality that one day Christians will judge the entire cosmos, the entire world, that the saints will judge the world. There's so many interesting things about this. Guys, think about this. We've recently studied so much eschatology here in our church, haven't we? We walked through the book of Revelation. Uh, we've met it in uh, First Thessalonians, right? And, you know, oftentimes the, the question is, well, what, what, does, what does that matter to us? Uh, Paul, Paul, here in this chapter, this is, a li- this is a living illustration, a biblical illustration of why knowing eschatology things about the future should change the way that we live our lives now. Because Paul says, because because one day you will judge the world, this is how you should live now. Isn't that interesting? Apparently Paul had taught them this before. Where else is this taught in Scripture that saints will judge the world And what does that judgment look like? I'll just give you a few passages you can write down. I'll read them to you. But in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 7 is a prophecy about future things. Daniel would write there, I kept looking and that a horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them until the ancient days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one. And listen to this. And the time arrived that the saints took possession of the kingdom. And a few verses later, Daniel 7, 27, then the sovereignty, dominion, and the greatness of all the kingdoms, all the cosmos under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. We encounter it there. 
We hear allusions to this reality, future reality. Matthew 19, verse 28, where Jesus Himself promised His disciples, saying, Truly I say to you that you who have followed Me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on His glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. A few more here. 2 Timothy 2.12 Maybe the simplest statement of all of these, if we endure, we will also reign with Him. There's that idea as well. The last three here come from our study in Revelation. Revelation 2, 26 and 27, to the persecuted church in Thyatira, Jesus said, He who overcomes and he who keeps my deeds until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron as vessels of potter are broken to pieces, as I also have received authority from my Father. In chapter 3, verse 21 of Revelation, to Laodicea, Jesus says, He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne. And then lastly, um, probably the, the account of this, in Revelation 20, verse 4, during the earthly millennial reign of Christ, John writes of the saints, Then I saw thrones, And they sat on them, and here it is, and judgment was given to them. That's the saints. That's where it's taught. So so let let me ask you this way then. Which seems harder? All of those things? Judging the world? Or judging between two brothers who have a dispute about some earthly trinket? I mean, that's Paul's point here. Do you see it now? In fact, it is explicit in the second part of verse 2. He connects the dots for us. Look, if the world is going to be judged by you, are you not competent? Are you unworthy? Are you incapable? Are you unfit to constitute the smallest law courts or to make, in other words, a much less significant decision to counsel your brothers who are having a conflict? Of course not. Paul would say the implication is help them. Paul says, listen, one day you're, you're going to judge the entire cosmos, Christian. Do you realize that? You're, that is who you are in Christ as a saint. One day you'll be given authority over all of God's kingdom and all of God's cosmos. Jesus Himself, the King, will mediate His eternal rule through you. You will reign with Him according to all the passages that we just read. And it is a reality, a spiritual reality, Christian, that He will give you by His wisdom and His Spirit the wisdom to handle all the affairs of every kingdom under His power and dominion. That's coming for us. And you're not adequate to settle the smallest issues in the church right now? How can that be? Instead, you're giving that authority to those whom you will one day judge yourselves. Paul says, that is ridiculous. Listen, this this would be like a Supreme Court justice acting as though 
he were incapable of settling a squabble in his homeowners association. <laughs> it was absurd and unfathomable to Paul in every way. And so one commentator writes this then, their future status should have revealed to them how foolish it was to bring minor disputes to be settled in a court belonging to a world whose form is passing away and destined for divine condemnation. So in Christ, they should have recognized that the wisdom God gives to Christians is sufficient to settle the kinds of disputes they are bringing before unbelievers. After all, the wisdom we have in Christ, beloved, is sufficient for final judgment for greater spiritual matters. Do you believe that? Because you who are in Christ, do you believe that what you have makes you competent to counsel and judge and resolve any conflicts that might arise within the church amongst your brothers and sisters, like especially over little er earthly matters. God has given us His Spirit and His Word. God has given us the mind of Christ. Let's let's live as if we have it (laughs) and not turn to other places for wisdom. So that, that at least introduces this. We'll continue. We'll finish up our, that first reason and get into the second one soon enough. I, I cannot wait. I'll just, just a little teaser. I cannot wait till the second part of this because he's actually going to, he's going to dangle before us this idea that, look, you, these disputes shouldn't even get to that point because you're, because you shouldn't, you shouldn't make so much of these earthly things. Why not rather be wronged? Who cares? Let them have it. You inherit the kingdom of God. That's what belongs to you. Listen, that eternal perspective, guys, should do so much for you. When you think of the conflicts that you have, the little petty conflicts that you have, between brothers. Um, so that, that's what's coming. Ben? So, quick question. Sure. Maybe you'll answer it next week. But, Probably. Um, like, uh, one scenario that, like, uh, I see encounters a lot, like, uh, my dad's an architect, for example. He mm-hmm. works in, like, a partnership. And so he works with a lot of, like, contractors and people that, you know, they know that are, you know, Christians or 